0: Coming to you from the Wild Goose Festival, it's Ask Science Mike Live! Yeah, got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He's got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. And this week it's a live episode. The questions are unscreened, the answers unrehearsed, and the information inaccurate. It's always a lot of fun and it's always a good time, but we've got a show to do, so let's get it started.
1: Hey, my name is Kevin Garcia. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. And my question kind of centers around um, some stuff that uh, you discussed it on, like, the Liturgist podcast before about LGBTQ issues. Um, in regards to what, like, science and psychology is showing us about gender identity uh, and sexual orientation being formed a lot within uh, in utero, what kinds of conversation or topics can you bring up to congregations who are more likely to be conservative or
0: even downright um, hurtful or judgmental or marginalizing those groups of people? Good question. Um, And as you know, I'm an expert in making conservative people feel comfortable. Uh, (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, that's a... That's a struggle I have. So, I can I certainly understand a lot about the science of uh, the understood science, the known science of gender identity and orientation formation. Uh, like many things in uh, the human experience, it's an oversimplification to say that we are born with a gender or an orientation. And it's also an oversimplification to say that it's learned behavior, it's an intersection of nature and nurture. Um, I tend to think. Um, humans make more sense if you uh de-anthropomorphize them and you think of us more like animals and when you look at um similar species of animal that aren't as culturalized you find that really and truly orientation and gender are both kind of um constructed ideas that what the evolution and the biology of human beings leaves us with primarily uh, is um, criteria by which we choose people we would like to stimulate our genitals with (laughs) and everything else is window dressing right Um, and so for someone like me who feels very comfortably binary male very comfortably heterosexual I understand that that there's a huge amount of culturalization and socialization at play that that is pretty unprecedented in the animal kingdom, right? So the more we study, the more we realize like uh, especially mammals will pretty much do anything to stimulate their genitals because it's a really powerful drive that evolution has rewarded. Animals that don't seek genital stimulation don't pass on their genes and they fall out of the gene pool. Here's the problem with that argument for conservative people. Are you talking about evolution? And epistemologically, science isn't something they necessarily respect deeply and certainly hold as subordinate to scripture and their understanding of God. So I understand like my wheelhouse, the science of how things happen, is a completely ineffective tool to convince conservative people uh, that their attitudes about the sinfulness, about gender and orientation are a harmful force in our world. So what do I do instead? I focus on what I know about the science of manipulating people. (laughs) And I understand that human brains are overwhelmingly palatable and manipulated by what? Story. So I don't spend an ounce of effort trying to use science to convince conservative religious people to accept different ideas about gender and orientation. Instead, I highlight the stories of people who have suffered or died as a result of the church's approach to sexuality? So I, I completely bypass the science argument for people it won't work for. Now for everybody here, we talk about science. that's a really like convincing thing that helps us learn about the world. Um, but that's I never make the mistake anymore of assuming other people have the same epistemology or the same respect for how knowledge is acquired that I do. And the best thing I can do in every circumstance is start by listening to understand what assumptions they may hold so that I can communicate in a way that is neurocognitively palatable to them. Does that make sense? Yes. Right on. Thank you. Awesome. That's a really good question.
2: Hi, My name is Claire Walters. I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, So I'm in yoga teacher training right now. And um, so we're really getting into like heart chakras and meditation and a lot of deeper stuff than I'd ever done in yoga Mm -hmm. just on my own. Mm -hmm. So my question is a little bit two part, but both with yoga, um, because two really kind of weird things happen to me in my practice and I have no idea why that happened. So one thing that happened was um in the middle of a yoga class we were doing the teacher said we were going to do a lot of heart openers which is your chest is open and your shoulders are back. So um and they gave us, you know, some cues and told us that you might get emotional because of this pose because mm-hmm. it's going to open up your heart well which is Fine, But it was kind of weird to hear that. Mm-hmm. And so we did it, and I was waterworks, crying, crying, mm-hmm. crying, crying. No idea why. No idea. Nothing was wrong, nothing bad, but just because of that. So I don't know why that happened. And then the second thing that happened was in a different class. Um, at the very end of the class, we were meditating and laying in Shavasana. And um, I, we laid there long enough that I no longer felt my body. Mm -hmm. like my fingers were together, my Mm -hmm. feet were together, but it felt like they weren't. So I kept Mm -hmm. touching to see if they were and they were, but I had no sensation and I almost felt like I was floating. Yeah. So why, why did all that happen
0: to me? (laughs) That's a great question. Thank you. Um, I'm a meditation nut. Uh, I'm too fat and inflexible to be a yoga nut, but, um, that's not true. Actually, yoga is very accommodating to all people, even folks like me. But, uh, I'm actually just very lazy, so I like to primarily center my practice around my mind and stillness. Um, We have this assumption. It's remarkable, remarkable the similarity between post-enlightenment religion uh, and kind of a modern neurocognitive approach to humanity they both are built on this assumption of a separation between the mind and the body right it's a fundamental assumption we kind of if you really think about how you look at you most people kind of think of themselves as like you know this like uh brain that's got little controls and levers and it's operating a body but you may uh not know that for example there are more neurons in your gi tract than there are in a frog's brain, right? You, have, you literally have a gut brain. And your brain, um, many of the neurotransmitter functions um, and the ex- excitatory and inhibitory functions of neurotransmitters are related to signaling that happens where? In the body. It's in the body. And you also, by the way, You can have neurotransmitter elements that happen in other parts of your body other than your brain. What does this mean? It means that our posture affects our cognition, right? So we're going to try this. Even everybody in Radioland can do this as well. The first thing I want you to do is I want you to just crumple up your body as much as you can. Cross your arms. Get your legs close together. I want you to kind of bend over and as much as you can just go into a ball. And I want you to stay that way for 20 or 30 seconds, and I want you to pay attention to how you feel, how you feel about other people around you, how you feel emotionally. And what you may find most people do is the longer they hold this pose, kind of the more defensive and closed off they feel. Okay? Now, try to do the opposite. Now, lean back. Put your arms out put your legs out really relax get loose right hold your head up high maybe even look up instead of looking down and see how your feelings start to change your conscious experience and your emotional experience and you'll find that it affects your temperament how you hold your body so when you go into yoga and they t- you have this heart opening exercise you go into these very receptive postures And you've been primed by someone telling you something's going to happen. So at the beginning of this program, I did a neuroscience trick. I told you when you cheered, you would get excited even though I told you you were going to get excited. And for most people, that actually plants a suggestion in their mind and they go for it. It actually works more than if I hadn't said that. So it's the combination of those two things, setting expectations and utilizing mind-body linkage creates those really powerful experiences, your, your posture. So when I, when I meditate, posture is a huge part of how I prepare and training. The reason practice is so important meditation, the, the repetition of getting into your, your meditative posture creates a conditioning that trains your brain to respond. Right. So the reason I always sit in the same pose and ideally when I'm at home in the same place is I'm conditioning myself like Pavlov's dog, heard the bell and drooled. I sit in my meditation chair and put my palms up and instead of drooling, I start to enter a meditative state. It's training and conditioning. Now, you mentioned that you got so deep into a meditative experience, you kind of lost your sense of physical sensation. That is totally normal when I get into a deep enough meditative state, I actually lose my sense of having an observer at all. It's total presence. And um, it is one of the most neurologically beneficial things you can do is meditate enough to get into that state. What science is telling us is... Not only does that encourage the formation of healthy brain tissue, it allows you while you're awake to tar- start to tap into some of the restorative processes in your brain that happen when you're asleep. In fact, one study recently came out that showed um, the incredible, incredible neurological benefit of a daily silence regimen of literally just sitting in silence, escaping noise was restorative to brain function. So what science is telling us as we look deeply is that the desert fathers and mothers were onto something that the idea that we are separate, a separate spirit from a body or in modern science, a separate brain from a body doesn't illustrate the human experience at all.
1: So, my name's Caleb. I'm from Joplin, Missouri. Uh, and my question is, how do you ask good questions? What does science have to say about that? And, like, all the people that, that I, like, really look up to and respect, they just ask the best questions all the time. And I always wonder, how in the world do you do that? That's my question.
0: Man, that's a good question. <laughs> I got to be honest. I do question and answer a lot and I've sort of developed a mental discipline wherein I I rarely, rarely, rarely feel like, like usually about the third word, I kind of know where I'm going with the answer and I still don't know where I'm going with this answer. I'm real stumped. How do I ask good questions? Uh, I think it is nurturing an insatiable curiosity and um, being multidisciplinary Um, so I, I try to read six to eight books a month lately with all the travel I've been real slacking off. It's been three to four. Um, but I, I make sure they're from a variety of disciplines and perspectives. I always try to read at least one book a month that I fundamentally disagree with, um, by someone I respect. So the most valuable voices in my life are people I respect who disagree with me, not on 30% of the things, but 98 and a half. Uh, there's a, I have a friend who's a conservative evangelical pastor, and he and I, like we probably maybe agree on the color of the sky most days, and that's it, but I keep him in my life, and I like to have lunch with him a lot because he challenges all my assumptions, all of them, and he, he agrees things that I literally think are harmful to the world, and I believe things that he believes are harmful to the world. But in that intersection, that challenging, it raises new questions. So the, the greatest gift he can give me is to challenge an assumption I have with a premise I've never heard. And I, th- I think that's what it comes down to because I'm thinking about the people I know who are asking the most interesting questions, which by the way, those are the people I try to spend the most time with. Um, And what they all share is an insatiable curiosity and they apply it in a way that transcends discipline. Uh, our society really encourages specialization, but I think the Renaissance was a thing for a reason that based on the way creativity happens in the brain, it happens in something called your association cortices. And those are subway stops between different neighborhoods of the brain. And they take unrelated ideas and make connections. Uh, And if there's nothing new under the sun, right, which is kind of this idea, maybe there are at least unexpected connections that drive new insights. So I think that's probably it. It's probably diversity and frequency of information intake. I don't know. I just made that up.
1: Hi, uh, Mike. I'm Mike Potter from uh, Millsboro, Delaware. I want to thank you for all you do. I've been following your work since the first episode of The Liturgists. Uh, in the newest Dan Brown book and soon to be released movie Inferno, the story revolves around overpopulation
0: of the earth. Can you tell us what science says about overpopulation and what the response of religious people should be? Wow. Man, yeah. That's clap right after the question. See, you got to clap. When they ask the question, gives you a clap later, you're applauding for my answer. And frankly, I get too much ego validation already. Um, (laughs) Overpopulation is a pickle uh, because we have a really hard time figuring out what the Earth's carrying capacity is because we make these assumptions about... um, how many fossil fuels there are, how much renewable energy, how much water, and then some engineer figures out how to triple the efficiency, and the numbers all get lost, right? So, like, depending on your assumptions, we're already way past the Earth's carrying capacity, uh, or we're at less than half, right? Um, An interesting thing about overpopulation is the degree to which we're starting to think it is somewhat a self-limiting phenomenon uh growth rates are declining in China and India right uh the developed nations are having this real pro- you know it's so funny to me that like wealthy developed nations panic about immigration but we already know what happens with a wealthy nation that doesn't have immigration it's japan and it has a declining population and e- resulting economic calamity Immigrants are actually the engine of new economic activity in developed nations. So it's a really weird, like self-defeating idea. we got to keep these people out because we really need our economy to crash. Like, what? Um, Read some economics, man. So partially, uh, hopefully, as we're getting better, it's really easy to be cynical about humanity's prospects, especially this week. i got to be honest. I'm in a real dark place. Black men being shot hanging from trees and parks and now police officers mowed down i haven't been this cynical about our species in years as i am like lamenting this week but at the same time i do that and my emotions and my kind of limbic system are in the dumps i'm trying to remember what i've learned neocortically the data points and the data points tell me global violence is declining population growth is slowing famine and poverty are going down especially the most severe kinds uh and in some ways we're stumbling into solutions to some of our problems now that doesn't mean we like need to let off the gas i think we're moving far too slow on the most important issues that face the species but if we can create education and economic empowerment opportunities for women worldwide you just fix population growth you just fixed it Because what do we know? Educated, affluent women, they have less babies. Too busy living their life, right? It's only uh, in low education, no income opportunity situations where women become so reduced in society that all they do is rear babies. Now, of course, that's the most important thing anyone can do. Um, But I am not nearly as concerned with overpopulation as climate change clean water and global poverty Um, because those three things can shift our assumptions and shift the underlying levers and make the population we have now too much Um, so i think the way you address overpopulation is the fundamental economic and environmental challenges um and not in something like mandated child birth rates because they they don't work anyway and they tend to create all kinds of issues for female infants um that's a really good question though
1: Hey, Science Mike. I'm Zach from Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Zach. Sorry, I'm shaking your hand over the radio. But that's okay. I love it. Or the podcast. It's not a radio,
0: but it feels like radio. I like radio. to say radio. People right. listen on their car radios. We call it a radio even when you're not using it to tune in radio waves. All right. But I mean, if you're using electromagnetic energy traveling across a sync cable, it's, it's a similar energy, so why not? Radio. It's different frequency, right. whatever. That works. So my question is,
1: um, you've been very
0: open uh,
1: about your journey from a faith community out and then back in. And uh, We're at Wild Goose,
0: where a lot of people seek to connect. They're on their own journeys. A lot of people are on a spiritual journey in isolation. So my question is, as we build and develop more ways for people to step back in to a community that is spiritually centered, uh, what is, from your scientific perspective, uh, the the benefits for people to, to practice spirituality in community? community as opposed to in isolation oh yeah man that's a good question uh book plug time uh my two favorite chapters in the book finding god in the waves Uh, one is called the good book and it's about like why i like the bible again And the other is called Take Me to Church, and it's about that question. Uh, And it's lifted from the Sinead O'Connor song, Take Me to Church. So the the great thing about church is it is a community centered around spirituality, which is also the worst thing about church. Here's why. What you believe, your spiritual beliefs, uh, neurologically are closely associated with your sense of identity. Which means, for most people, when someone threatens your religious assumptions, they threaten your sense of self, which, spoiler alert, human brains don't like. Right? We like to be really certain about how we see the world because that means our observations line up with our predictions, which means we're most likely to survive thanks to something called your orbitofrontal cortex. Uh, The other thing we know is evolution has primed us to be fearful of being ostracized from social situations and happy when we're immersed in community. So we know, for example, when someone goes from not being in a faith community to in a faith community that is healthy for them, they experience a shift in personal happiness similar to someone who moves from the bottom quartile to the top quartile of income that's phenomenal. Uh, They tend to live longer. They tend to get sick less. They have these genuine physiological benefits. Why? Because their monkey brain, their mammoth brain says, I'm part of the herd. I'm part of a troop. I'm okay. And that's an incredible benefit until your faith community becomes authoritarian, abusive, or exploitive. And now the same things that made it so good for you make it terrible for you and that's why we have a thing now called spiritual PTSD because the same hooks in your brain that make church so good for you means when it goes bad it can be one of the most scarring things that can happen in my experience leaving my southern baptist church in a end up being a very messy mutual divorce was more traumatic than my parents actual divorce I spent more time in therapy dealing with that pain than I did the dissolving of my parents' actual union. And it's because we're a social species that's wired for spiritual experiences as two fundamental human experiences and church rests on both of those cognitive pillars. Um, So how do you know if a church works for you or not? That's the important thing to me. The church that's right for you will do two things. But it must do both of them, in my opinion. One, a healthy church will affirm you exactly as you are. So even if they love you and they say you're great, but the only way you can be right with God is if you change your orientation, head for the back door, Don't try to reform that place. They will chew you up and spit you out with the best of intentions, right? Your church has to accept you exactly as you are, but your church also has to challenge you to become who you can be. And I would even say a little bit theistically for me who God is helping you become, right? So your church must both comfort you and challenge you, to be a safe, effective place. Like if you just go and it's like self-help Sunday and you walk, you're like, man, I feel great every Sunday. I mean, like it feels great to eat pound cake, but it's not healthy. You know what I mean? Like if I eat pound cake every Sunday and I do, uh, it's not good (laughs) for your body, right? And the same way a church, that's just nothing but like filling you up isn't healthy for your body. Soul. You can't see the air quotes in Radio Land. Soul from the materialist. So, um, yeah, I think that's it. It's uh, your church has to be uh, accept who you are, affirm who you are, and challenge you to become who you could be. Okay.
1: Hey man, how's it going? Zach Amory from Zach, is that two Zachs in a row? Yeah, man. Right on. So, what do you think Jesus would think about psychedelic substances? And can. <laughs> Can psychedelics have a legitimate place in the Christian church as a spiritual discipline?
0: Full disclosure. Full disclosure. That is the most commonly asked question every week on Ask Science Mike. And I have instructed Andrew to not select that question and let the patrons vote for it. See, so he just blew my cover in a huge way. I was stopped. Here we go. Science Mike weighs in on drugs. Okay. Um, I grew up in the 80s under the Reagan drug war. And I was science-oriented already. It's really weird. A little Southern Baptist scientist. and um, So when they came and they told us about the medical effects of drugs, what did I do? Man, I just absorbed it like a sponge. And as I got older, with those sets of assumptions about what drugs did to human brains, that affected how what I selected further research. I had a bias. And if you would have asked me that question a year ago, I would have been like, Well, I don't know what Jesus would say. I would know science says you're burning holes in your brain. That's a terrible idea. In private conversations, people I trust have been challenging my assumptions and encouraging me to read more data as you know i'm not a fan of pseudoscience or conspiracy theories so i tend to write that stuff off but i'm starting to see actual clinical information historical information that makes me think the government's relationship with illegal substances is not necessarily motivated out of a desire to protect the public you know the war on drugs um and i hear some snapping it's a wild goose thing uh That the war on drugs, whether intentional or not, is a systemic war on poor people and especially people of color. Uh, That substances, especially like marijuana, were literally put on the controlled substance list uh, because someone needed funding. So I'm in a a state right now where I'm fundamentally reevaluating and trying to find research, good research on these experiences. And here's the problem, because they are controlled substances, there's not a ton of research, which as an empiricist, that's a huge problem, because I don't just like make assumptions. And if I figure out I'm making assumptions, I usually like hit myself with a wooden spoon. So what I do know is that there is a significant neurological similarity between some controlled substances and what naturally happens in the brain and spiritual experiences. And I don't know what I think about that. On the one hand, is there something to the potency of our spiritual experiences, the amount of work some of them are required, the amount of meditation you might need to get to that zone or the amount of time investment you have to put in? You never want like a, a spirituality tourism industry centered around substances. But at the same time, I I don't know this for a fact, but I suspect there's a gene called the God gene, which is a really ridiculous, like, it's a great brand, but it's inaccurate. What the God gene is, is it based on its expression, which is variable, if you have a high expression of the God gene, your brain naturally produces a neurotransmitter that acts like a low-grade psychedelic. And based on the fact that my whole life, there's been sort of this magical sheen to reality, and I've like even as a kid experienced God and as an adult, like heard Jesus talk to me and then seeing this incredible light on a beach, I suspect I'm a little bit high all the time neurologically. And is it fair for me to go? Well, if you're not having that, you should just work harder to someone who doesn't have that same gene gene expression. So I'm fundamentally like reevaluating how I look at those things. Here's what I'll say. Uh, be careful. So even if the science comes out and says that LSD or mushrooms or whatever are completely safe, they're still illegal, which means what? There's no regulation or control in how these things are produced. They're not made by qualified professionals and labs and chemists. They're made by people Googling things. Uh, and when you're talking about substances that are active at a neurological level, that can be an issue. And also remember all drugs, all drugs. What's a drug? The drug is something other than food that affects the function of the body. Tylenol, Advil, marijuana, heroin all share something in common. They change the balance between uh, excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters in your brain. And in any of them, overusage can for a time or even permanently affect the balance and ratio of those neurotransmitters, which affects the way you experience the world. So you can substance spirituality your way to clinical depression, for example. So I guess my answer would be I'm more open than I've ever been still deeply skeptical and always advise caution. That is the most <laughs> legal fine print answer I've ever given in the history of Ask Science. But
1: Jonathan Garner from Burlington, North Carolina. Good to see you. Hi. So I'm an outpatient therapist, a clinical social worker, and often doing cognitive behavioral therapy, helping Ooh, yeah. people identify cognitive distortions and get past some of their stuff. My question is, is on a daily basis, as uh, enthused as I am about helping people do that, as I've seen it uh, help a lot in my own life, um, at what point do we start shortchanging people? because it's the modern science, everything's showing, hey, how much responsibility we truly do have over our own actions and the outcome of our own life and circumstances, hence all the, uh, a lot of the stuff on the law of attraction and these things. But at what point, you know, I, I'm assisting clients sometimes, and I wonder, like, so in emphasizing this, I see the results, I know there's benefits, but at, do I go too far in leaving out the spiritual and suggesting that, hey, this responsibility totally is on you?
0: Right on. Good question. Um, I love to snap it. That's cool. Oh, uh, wow. So, cognitive behavior therapy, CBT, is my jam. It's my favorite thing. It's the way I regularly and consistently reprogram the flash RAM of my own brain to make my life be how I want. Um, I discovered cognitive behavior therapy in high school. I tried to kill myself and my mom found me and they took me to therapy and I thought the guy was an idiot so they took me to another guy and that guy introduced me to cognitive behavior therapy and explained the theory and the neuroscience and I got super into it so I use cbt to like get out of depression here's how cognitive behavior therapy works uh first step become aware of your thoughts you think all the time but you just kind of unconsciously, consciously think. So there's a little mindfulness step where you step back and you just become aware of your thinking. And then as you learn to pay attention to your thoughts, you like interrupt your stream of consciousness. So uh, if we tend to be really gracious with others and really hard on ourselves. So if you're like, oh man, I'm really stupid in your head, Cog and behavior there says you stop that, you interrupt the thought, and you say no you're not congratulations that's like the shortest version of cognitive behavior therapy that exists but that's 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 the theory uh clinical trials have shown it to be remarkably effective for people that can pull it off and i might be the wrong person to ask like where do we draw the line because i don't like using cbt suggestions I mean, I literally keep an evernote with the ones I review in the morning of the current CBT therapies I'm applying to myself. Uh, there's this book called "The Happiness Hypothesis that I love, and it, it talks about human consciousness as being an elephant and a rider, and your rider's your conscious mind, and the elephant's the unconscious. And what cognitive behavior therapy does is help you train the elephant. Right? So no matter how strong, even if my conscious mind is, you know, uh, Chris Hemsworth, Really big, beefy, strong guy. Like the amount of influence through brute strength, Chris Hemsworth can have over an elephant is insignificant. It's really no different than my daughter. They can both ride an elephant. They can pull hard the as they want. And the elephant's like, okay, I'm gonna go this way. But if you train the elephant instead of trying to force the elephant, it's easier to modify its behavior. And that's what CBT does. So, like, what's the interplay between that and spirituality? Um, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I'm not sure what spirituality even is, but I think if there's a methodology that helps people affect positive change in their life and feel better, that sounds a lot to me like renewing your mind daily and having a life more abundantly, which I think is, is one of the most spiritual things you do because there's, there's this very legitimate critique of self-help and therapy and, and that it, there's, we build this idol of self. But if the reason we're becoming healthy is because once we're more healthy, we're able to actually help other people more, like that's the gospel. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's the sick getting more well and helping others to get well. So I, I don't know. I totally look at cognitive behavior therapy as a spiritual discipline. It's a form of my prayer, my meditation, my interceding. Because it allows us to influence those parts of our minds that we can't directly influence or control. Really good question. Thank you.
3: Yeah. Hi, Mike. Uh, my name is Jen Olshak from Cookville, Tennessee. And I had a question for you about, uh, well, I guess it starts with a very short story. Uh, my husband is an elementary school teacher, and we just moved on to a new big uh, farm and on that farm there are a whole lot of geodes and um, he was very excited to see all these geodes and brought them to show them to his students and uh, was in the copy room with a couple other teachers and um, showed the geodes to these two other teachers and he just sort of, in conversation, said to them, God, isn't this just amazing? I mean, like, just a thing. Like, this may have been on our land for, like, a million years. Isn't this just awesome? And so then the two teachers kind of looked at each other and kind of rolled their eyes and looked at my husband, like, in all seriousness, and said, you know, please, nothing is more than 2,000 years old. Come on. And so... My husband was so hurt by this because he was so excited about the science of it and the excitement of sharing this with... Uh, anyway, he so I guess... God, where do you go from there? I mean, because he, he went home and was just like, what the hell? Like, he was just so upset about it. And so I just wanted you to to speak on that some about... About anything about that, you would you would want to say? Thank you.
0: Well, if you'd like resources on understanding why those geos are only ten thousand years, I'd like to recommend uh, Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis. Great resource for people. Uh, that was that was snarky. I shouldn't have done that. Um, leave it in, Greg. Okay, so I love modern art. Like modern art's my favorite. Like the more abstract, weird, everybody goes, wait, what is that? That's the stuff I find the most evocative. So if I go to a modern art museum with certain friends, they go, what is that? You know what I mean? Just like, yeah. And I've tried to explain it, but like... If you don't see it, you don't see it. And if I uh, wait for them to appreciate it to allow me to appreciate it, then I'll never get to. So I got, I have this gift in that I was horribly bullied as a kid. And I had to learn how to just like things on my own and not care if other people approved or not. And that's led to some pretty strange, destructive behaviors like wearing Crocs in public and... Um, science t-shirts and stuff like that. But on the other hand, it actually uh, is a pretty satisfying life because I'm always happy to share my insights and what I've learned and what I'm learning and what I'm unsure about. But if somebody else is not in, whatever, I know the party's with me. Like if they're not coming to the party, they just don't get a hat and that's their problem. So if I'm going to spend energy trying to convince people of something, The age of the earth on my list of 1,500 is like, you know, 1,498. I would rather talk about income inequality, climate change, things that like materially affect the survival prospects of the species. And climate change is related. The geode is just as beautiful even if they don't get it. You know what I mean? So I think I think the biggest thing I've learned is happiness and fulfillment are on the other side of giving up the desire to control others. And we don't think like, none of us think like we're manipulative, we want to control people. But as soon as you like really care what somebody thinks, you have a desire to control them. You want to control what they think. And I just don't care anymore like if you're like the earth is 10,000 years old I'm like okay cool I mean I don't I guess I understand that you could believe that Uh, don't hurt yourself (laughs) you know what I mean (laughs) like but uh, especially in the south I I think the other part is curating curating your closest relationships with people that get you you know what I mean so I live in Tallahassee Florida which uh, is like like southern blue (laughs) like it's this little blue county in a sea of red and uh, you know everybody in the surrounding counties thinks we're like california liberal but tallahassee liberal is like california republican and i've just learned that i have a half dozen really close friendships there and that's just that's just the thing and the last thing I'll say, and this is really discouraging and people hate to hear it, but geography matters. One of my friends says geography matters. Who? Anyway, I think sometimes you, if it, if it's dragging you down and you can't get over it, you have to go to a land where people get you. You know what I mean? Like how long do you just now? That's also a really privileged perspective because I'm making the assumption you can up and move and not everyone can. Um, so there's, a, there's certainly a critique to even that idea. But there's a reason I think I'm going to pack a semi this December and roll west. You know what I mean? Like, I, it's just, there's a place where people don't think what I think is weird. And maybe I don't want to swim against all the other fish all the time. Yeah. Hi.
4: I'm Anna Register. I'm a children's pastor in um, Franklin, Tennessee. Yeah. Um, So, my question is, and my premise may be completely false, so correct me. But my understanding is that as we repeat behaviors and actions and thoughts, we develop literally neural pathways, like little paths in our brain, right? And it's why learning new things is really frustrating and difficult because myelination is literally creating the new pathways.
0: Yeah, reinforcing, sure. Right,
4: okay. So, um, I wonder how that process of myelination and creating sort of novelty in your own life, which can be really frustrating, how that translates to social memory and social cognition especially in light of the clear um, rampant racism in our country thats that goes so far back in our history what does it look like to change the social cognition of a society and it, can that even be linked I don't know
0: man <laughs> you really should have just pulled the mic out of the stand and dropped it as you walked off the stage that oh uh, let i'm really comfortable with both parts of the question i'm not comfortable linking them so let's talk about brain science for a second it's one of my favorites brain si- like neurology and cosmology are kind of like like my peanut butter and jelly like they're just they're good they're delicious uh they work well together um but i also have to be honest that in neuroscience We're where cosmology was when Galileo made the telescope, you know, like we're just like, whoa, it's not transparent spheres like so primitive. So a huge percentage of what we understand about brain function today, I feel like in 30 years, you remember when we thought that, Um, but kind of what you're talking about, the the detention and learning. It's not just about how neural pathways get reinforced. It's really that you have two opposing strategies in your brain for dealing with information. Uh, Limbic system and below tends to be very fast-acting neurological circuits. Neocortex tends to be slow oxygen expensive calorie expensive uh and when you your brain interprets a set of signals and sensory input as something familiar it passes it to the fast brain the you might have heard it called the wolf brain and then when it's like really puzzled and does not know how to proceed it's like oh well turn on the supercomputer you know what i mean but oh this is gonna be such a drain on resources um And it's that tension so as you face something novel repeatedly what you find is the brain's activity moves from the neocortex inward into the brain and that's when you have muscle memory uh and those kinds of things so that's issue one about learning so there's this other thing about social learning and why we're so stuck in our ways uh you almost never hold individual beliefs Almost never. Uh, The primary function in the formation of human belief is social identity. So what we found in studies is the labels you apply to yourself affect the way you absorb new information and you unconsciously reject information that subverts the labels you've chosen. This is equally true if the label is Republican, Democrat, feeling the burn, um, you know, atheist, agnostic, Baptist, whatever, you're going to automatically start to filter out information that goes against those ideas. Uh, You will also, in social identity formation, uh, often misattribute your motivations. Uh, Show me a conservative white person who believes they are racist. Show me. Bring them. I would love to meet them. I would love to meet them. So when you call someone like that who... Disproportionately, may engage in racist behaviors. If you actually call them a racist, they shut down. Because guess what you just did? You just presented them with information that goes against their self assigned labels, and completely unconsciously, it rolls off like water off a of duck's feathers. Psh, gone. Don't stick. Don't stick. So um, that's why. Uh, like on the liturgist podcast, for example, we're obsessed with storytelling, 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 storytelling. So we did this, uh, episode 20 LGBTQ and we had like 10 minutes of scientific argument and the rest of it was what (laughs) stories, right? Uh, we did, uh, our first episode on racism in America. And we brought on two people and we got them to, there was information, but they also told about their stories and experiences and people don't fight story and experience the same way that they fight, um, other phenomena. So if you want to change people's minds, use stories arguments. As soon as you engage in an argument or debate, people's amygdalas activate, and you're neurologically incapable of significantly engaging the neocortex while the amygdala is active. So, everyone's obsessed with what? Defending themselves or winning. Uh, But, if you keep the conversation calm and tell stories, you bypass people's cognitive defenses and reprogram their brains. Right? So, uh, like, I, I don't I don't do the all lives versus black lives matter debate. I don't do it. As soon as someone says all lives matter, I'm like, okay, I can't even talk to you right now because you just want to win. But maybe I'll remember that person if I'm close to them and later one-on-one in a safe context, tell them about my observations of things I've seen happen to my, to to actual people i know in my life with law enforcement with mall security with the billion indignities a day people of color face in america and that creates a completely different context now the reason i can do that why because i'm privileged i'm not directly affected so i also be very careful and say i'm not advocating that people who are under societal oppression or marginalization they need to watch how they communicate no right anger is the reasonable response but for me one step removed uh i'm an accomplice i don't i'm not an ally allies can shred the treaty at any time an accomplice commits the crime and may go to jail too right but um as that one step removed it's my job to create the safe space for someone who engages in a racial behavior to process and I can do that because of my privilege. That's how, you, that's how we cash in our privilege to destroy the system that creates it. Come on.
1: Hi, I'm Justin Stoller from Berkeley, California. Uh, my question is, what advice or thoughts could you offer to people who are, especially people of faith, but people who are attracted to the tools of science, but don't always
0: register the difference between science and pseudoscience? Oh, Yeah. Um, there's a book called the information diet. It's phenomenal. It's about in a, in an age when there's more information than there's ever been. How do you tell good information from bad information in pseudoscience versus science specifically? Show me the data, show me the methodology, show me the peer review. If you go to a site that makes lots of claims and it says studies have shown, but there's no link to a study that's a red flag. If they use scientific language in a way that uh, doesn't mit, meet the definition of the terms. So these, these oils contain photonic energy. No, the, no, they, no, no, that's not what a photon is. You know what I mean? This is, this is a red flag. So you, 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 you go with trusted sources to build some foundational scientific knowledge, and then you check references. And you'll find overwhelmingly pseudoscience if they reference something it's like a geocities website um like all capitals and like a diamond uh with an eyeball in it or whatever like it's just it's like really obvious tells um but we we're convinced by scientific language if we're not scientifically literate which is why i care so much about creating scientific literacy so that people can't be manipulated by pseudoscience which by the way the greatest source for pseudoscience in our society is advertising Right, like what? What's the thing that's in scope? It's right on the label. It's like looks like a chemical thing, but like there's a there's like a lowercase p that subset, which is not how chemical notation works. But you go, oh wow, they they've done their chemistry because that looks like chemistry class. And so, science literacy even helps us combat manipulation through advertising. So, check references and try to get a fundamental understanding of the basic terms. So everybody out there in podcast land, one last announcement. I want to let you to know that we're getting ready to announce the tour for Finding On the Waves this fall, but there are two stops. We already know about the Liturgist Gathering in September in Denver and October in Chicago. Uh, we'd love to see you there. Tickets are on sale now. Go to liturgist.com slash gathering. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you next week. Science Mike, give him some the love.